Harry Butthole Podcast is produced in partnership with Joy Sauce. Harry Butthole. Welcome to Harry Butthole Podcast. This is a podcast based on the popular Korean saying, if you laugh while crying, hair grows out of your butthole. I'm Youngmi Mayor. I'm the host. If you've been listening to this podcast for a minute, you know that I usually have a guest on and I ask them to share a sad story and then I try to make them laugh and then hair grows out of their butthole. I'm so I'm sure you're tired of hearing me explain this at the top of every episode. But, you know, I'm always paranoid that someone's going to start listening to this episode. This is like the first ever episode they're going to listen to and they're going to be like, why is it called Harry Butthole? Is it sex related? Sometimes it's not. It's just based on that saying. So two weeks ago, I changed the format of the podcast because I noticed that people were liking the episodes that I was doing on my own better than the interviews. And I, you know, I explained it last week. So sorry if I'm hashing through it again. But basically, it makes sense because I feel like people who are listening to this podcast probably relate to some aspect of my life. You know, I'm Korean American. I'm not going to. This is literally the same thing I said last week. I'm not going to go through all of it. I, I already explained this all week. I changed the format. So it's just me spiraling into a microphone about my unhinged thoughts that I have alone in my room. But this week, last week, the topic was white men dating Asian women from the perspective of uh, a child of that unholy union. Um, and then this week, the topic I have, <clears throat> I, I don't know what to call this, but I'm going to call it, what should I call This is the topic. I'm going to try to figure out what it's going to be called. The live, I'm doing this live. I don't like write any notes. I just think about a thought and then I just fucking go for it. The topic this week is this big epiphany I had where I went from somebody that like didn't want, that was like too insecure to live an authentic life I don't I know that sounds so like self-helpy but like somebody that was too scared to like live the life that they wanted and I had this big shift to just being like I'm gonna fucking do whatever I want and that happened very late for me I was 33 famously when I started doing stand-up and you know getting a divorce and things like that just shifting my life and you know, I am a little self-conscious because a lot of the topics that I'm going to discuss on this, you know, the new format of this podcast are topics that I've been basically talking about for years. But and, you know, if you've been listening to other podcasts that I've done or just looking at my content, you you know, I, I do talk about this quite often. But there's there's parts of it that I haven't really touched on, you know, in this like deep way. And I feel like today I'm just going to try to talk about those aspects. And, you know, again, it's like it's so hard making a podcast episode because I, I'm i like, I want to make sure that the person that's never heard my podcast is going to follow everything. But then also I'm like, I don't want to rehash every single thing I've ever said in my entire life for the people who have been following for a while. But um, just like a very quick like introduction into what happened in my life essentially is that basically I was raised I think like a lot of people are that are you know female presenting as children 
um, to be thought that, to be taught to think that our lives are sort of meant to take care of other people. And I know I just said, you know, like that's how a lot of like um, female presenting children are raised. But to be honest, I think most people are raised in this way. Even, um, you know, male presenting people uh, of all cultures. And I think a lot of it has to do with class, which I, I really don't think a lot of people talk about. I, I think everyone is raised to think that they are not good enough to be amazing or extraordinary because of the fear that their parents have and this internalized idea that kind of everyone has that they're not good enough and not to sound all hippy dippy, but that's just like simply not true. And I think a lot of like fucked up shit happens because a lot of people believe that, you know, and are taught that all their lives. Um, and so I'm just going to say, I'm going to take away like the, you know, somebody that was like raised as like a girl even though that is a huge part of it and it probably happens more than people that are, you know, male presenting. I, I truly believe that most people are raised like this. Y even, you know, British people. I know that's, <laughs> I don't mean that as a joke. Like, have you guys ever watched like The Crown? It like blows my mind. Like the fucking British royal family. These motherfuckers are like raised to, to like think that they're not that great. Like, did, did you guys watch, like, the episodes where, like, what's his fucking name? Charles was, like, a kid, and he had to go to private school, and they're like, oh, yeah, you fucking suck. I'm like, not fucking Prince Charles being told that he sucks. You know what I mean? And so then, like, when they grew up, they became shitty because, like, they, I feel like, resented that. Is this, d does that make sense? I kind of feel like even the, like, if the British royal family is being told that they suck, what chances do we have, you know, of like overcoming this like sort of destructive message that we're all receiving as children? And, you know, I think one of the other reasons why children are taught that is because, you know, even if you are like a wealthy white male, even if you're fucking Prince Charles, you still start life as a child. And being a child is definitely being part of of a is marginalized the right word for that or oppressed class right children are an oppressed group of people and um it's so weird how adults treat children like oh you're not good enough you're not as important as adults and and then they expect you like the day you turn 18 to just snap that off and be like now i'm worthy worthy of respect and and i can make my own decisions and so I think that's a big reason why a lot of people have this like internalized idea that they're not, they're not like deserving of what they want in life. Right. And that's like a whole thing. And I guess that's like a good place to start because I think when I was a kid, like most of us, I was taught this thing like, shut up. <laughs> just just shut up the end you know as a kid I was like shut up the adults are talking what you have to say is stupid and worthless and and how dare you talk at the dinner table and the adults are talking about something important and that was like really deeply ingrained in me 
just like Prince Charles, I identify as Prince Charles all of a sudden. And um, like probably most of the people listening, you know, we all have these memories of being a kid and being told that our voices just were not valuable and they were not going to be valuable until we were adults. And I remember having this really difficult shift as, you know, like an older teenager and somebody in my early 20s when all of a sudden, I mean, especially as a, a young girl, a young woman, when all of a sudden, you know, I would go um, like I remember even in high school as I got like to be an older teenager, they would be like, well, s- stand in front of everyone and give a speech and you got to be confident. And I was like, I've been told all my life to shut the fuck up because I'm an idiot. And now you want me to like give a, a speech about the about the like the Israeli-Palestinian conference or else I'm going to fail this class. And then they're like, well, why aren't you confident? You know what you're talking about. And I'm like, do, do I? Because I, I just remember being told to sh- be, like shut up my entire life. And um, I think it's really interesting that as humans age out of being children, all of a sudden adults are like, you got you to gotta be an adult now. You got to be confident and speak from your chest. And uh, now you just got to snap into it. And I'm like, dude, you, you, you people have been telling me that I'm an idiot for 16, 17 years. And I don't understand how I'm supposed to snap out of that. And I just remember that transition from being a child to an adult. And all of a sudden, adults are like, well, start, start being an adult um, was so difficult for me, you know, especially as a young woman. And also, if you, you know, being a young woman and like having some sort of level of intelligence and and being confident and trying to share my voice was also scary because then people were like what do you know you know or like where did you hear this you didn't write this things like that and so that was like a very hard shift and I remember just thinking years later probably in my early 30s just thinking about that time and being like how did the adults expect me to just unlearn all the shit that they told me my entire life. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, it took me years and years to like process out of that and be like, dude, my my self-esteem was, you know, they did a number on that bitch. And of course it took me a long time to be comfortable in my voice and speaking my voice because they literally told me since birth that it was of absolute no value. So I think that's like an interesting thing. And I, and I really hope that that's like relatable to people. And, and I really hope that that's relatable to people listening who are not, you know, Asian women, because like I said, like probably 50 times already in this episode, it's not just it's not just one group of people that go through that. It's practically all of us. Right. Um, but in in line with what I was saying about how I think most people are raised to think this way, it's really hard when you when you want to say to yourself and the world, like there is actually something that I want to say and do and um, shift from living this life of a lot of what's it obligation, you know, where you think, okay, I'm not good enough to be my own person and do what what I want but I can be you know for me in my case like a housewife and a caretaker and like help somebody else further their career which is what I did in my first marriage and um but before I talk about that big shift that happened when I was 33 I want to talk about that life 
and how it felt because I have a, I have a really bad feeling that a lot of people, not just people who are listening to this podcast, but why do I keep saying this? It's like everybody in the world. I get it. I, I said that already, but um, I have a feeling a lot of people are going to relate to this, my, my experience living that life. So, you know, and I also want to like emphasize that I was very, very happy in my marriage. And it wasn't that I entered into my marriage, um, which was 10 years long. think because my ex-husband was like, you have to become a housewife. It was not that at all. It was that I had been sort of brainwashed into thinking that that's what I had to do all my life. And so then I was looking for somebody that sort of had a similar way of thinking and we were both very young and we were both from these like traditional backgrounds that had like told both of us that this is what we were supposed to do so of course when we met we were like oh this is what we'll do you'll get a job you're a man I'm a woman I'll stay home and then I'll like clean or whatever and the interesting thing is you know neither of us actually believe that um and you know my ex and I I think during our marriage came to the conclusion that we were like what are we doing it's like we're like playing house because we bought into this idea that somebody told us and neither of us actually believed this and you know now after the marriage that I have my own career and I don't really live in that traditional way and my ex doesn't either like he has a partner now and they don't live in that way they're very Um, like his girlfriend is very, very creative and successful. And like, he has like, I think he, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm assuming because obviously they're still together that he has a lot of respect and comfort around somebody that is just as successful as he is. And I think he enjoys that a lot, a lot more than having what I refer to myself as a slurm when I was like back home doing nothing, being a slurm like he likes having a visible successful partner way way more than having a slurm at home you know which is what I was I'm not calling anyone else a slurm right now um so let me tell you about this like slurm life and how it felt when I was in my head thinking that I didn't deserve to really have a voice and I was just like living at home like hidden right and and this is the part I think that always surprises people And I have talked about it a little bit, but back in the days when I was a married stay at home slurm, I (laughs) didn't really like express any opinions. When I went outside, I was very, very quiet. I dressed very muted. I was terrified, I would say, to do something wrong. Like I just wanted this like vision of being like a perfect stay at home wife (laughs) and you know like my husband is the one that's like wants all the attention I don't want any attention that's embarrassing because that's what kind of loser would have an ego like that sort of um, thought process Um, and there were you know I was very very unhappy I was like deeply depressed because I wasn't really being true to myself and there were all these things that I wanted to do that I was too afraid to do Um, again, nobody was stopping me. It was just like my own mind telling me that this is what was expected from me. And when I I remember the hardest things that I had to experience during that time, and it would make me feel like rotten on the inside, like I was rotting away, was if I ever saw somebody else doing 
something that I really wanted to do. And it was this feeling of, I guess jealousy is the word for it, but it's like deeper than that because it's like deep, like soul crushing pain, resentment or something. And so I would just like pretend that I didn't notice. But if I ever saw somebody like just in my social circle, even close to my social circle that was doing something like comedy or, you know, somebody that I kind of knew that was like, I don't know. I I didn't know anybody that was on SNL. But for example, if I knew somebody that like went on SNL, I would be like, fuck. Do you know what I mean? It would ruin my life. And I would secretly, because I was like, I'd never told anybody until I was 33 that I wanted to be a comedian. I would secretly just get so sad about it. Never telling anyone because I thought it was embarrassing. Um, And that, all of that just led to just like the most crippling, what's the word, debilitating depression where I was just like laying around all day, not doing anything I wanted, miserable. And, uh, but I was like stuck in this place being like, I'm too scared to like try. You know what I mean? I'm like too scared to do it and I'm never going to do it. Plus I'm probably not good enough to do it. Like those are the voices that I heard in my head. So I was like, what, what am I jealous of? I don't have it. You know, another thing I remember always feeling, and these are the feelings that I can place and like put a finger on just like that jealousy feeling because they no longer exist, which is, I find fascinating. Like now if I see, you know, Oh, like a somebody that's similar to me, like an Asian woman doing comedy. I'm just like, yeah, you fucking go, girl. Like that's literally. I'm just so excited to see somebody. Like that whole resentment and jealousy is completely gone. It's it's so ridiculous. I I feel like it's gone even probably more than other people that I see in my circle. Because obviously jealousy is like a natural feeling, but I think because I have like achieved things that I've wanted to achieve like you know they're pretty I I was trying to minimize my accomplishments I don't want to say that because I I I find that that sounds rude but like you know like because I've achieved things in my career that I've wanted to that's alleviated all that like sad resentment so if I see other people succeeding next to me it no longer bothers me um so it's like that's why I have a hard time calling it jealousy I guess I it was almost like I I guess that that jealousy is the correct word for it right just like not wanting somebody to have something that you have or you don't have um but now that feeling's really gone another feeling that's completely gone since I sort of like stopped being a slurm is this is this is really interesting I feel like in my day-to-day life if I had any sort of little um, confrontation, I'll call it. No matter how minimal, like let's say somebody cut me in front of, like cut in front of me in a grocery store line, I would just get so enraged. Like just like my entire world would like come toppling down. It was just like, I can't believe the injustice. Like I was just like losing my mind. Um, and I think it's because I wasn't standing up for myself, you know? So it felt like 
every single day of my life was an injustice. Like, like I, I wanted something and the, the bully that lives inside my head was like bullying me constantly, telling me that I couldn't have it. So every moment of my life felt like I was being wronged. So if, if in real life, a, even a little thing like that would happen, that would just push me over the edge. Like I would absolutely lose it. And, you know, I would dwell on it and be angry about it for days, you know, weeks even. You know, somebody said something mean to me on the street, on the subway. Oh, it would it would feel like it was rotting my soul. And that's another thing that has drastically changed. Like now somebody will tell me to like kill myself on the street and I'll be like, oh, whatever. I like bumped. I guess I bumped into that man. I like will not bother me. Like the, it's the most somebody could cut me, you know, at the airport and it's like a rich person and I'm like, that's fine. Whatever. She's she seems like she's in a rush. Who cares? Like it doesn't bother me. Or I will just confront them. Like back in my slurm days, I wouldn't be able to confront them. And I would just hold it in and be like, I can't believe that this hap- that person did that to me. But now I'll just be like, hey, fuck you. And I could, I'll like literally very easily say things like that to people. I'll like stand my ground. And it, even if they like we get in a yell- screaming match, the moment it's over, I feel completely fine. Like I don't dwell on it. It doesn't fucking bother me. I don't like spiral about it all night. It just leaves me. And I, and those like two things that I just explained, like the, like the intense jealousy and resentment and the like very disproportionate emotional reaction to small confrontations are completely gone in my life. And those realizations I had literally years after, like, I feel like the small confrontation pissing me off thing, I just like recognize that I was like hey that's so weird if somebody does something fucked up to me and and I don't know them it literally doesn't bother me anymore but to I mean it makes a lot of sense to me why that is right because like I said when I was living a slurm life if I was bullying myself all the time but there is no longer that voice bullying me so I live this life that's very fulfilling and happy So little things will not disrupt my emotions at all. Um, So those are like the two things that like I noticed. There's so many other things, but just right off the bat. Um, And then the, I think the most profound realization that I had about living the slurm life. um, And this was in therapy. You know, I love talking about therapy. Was that. I remember like the day that my therapist said this and it hit me like a fucking bag of bricks or whatever the saying is. She said something along the lines of, I was talking about this, the relationship I have with my ex-husband because part of the slurm life is that nothing that I really wanted, I went out to get, right? So even in the relationship I had with my ex-husband, even though I deeply care about him and he's a great person, I purposely think I got married to somebody that wasn't like, I wasn't so passionately in love with that it was like dysregulating my emotions, if that makes sense. 
Like, it wasn't this marriage where I was, like, passionately in love with, you know, and, like, intoxicated with this person because even, because, first of all, if I ever felt that way about anyone, I would not date them. I would be too terrified. I would not talk to them ever. Um, so I felt everyone that I had dated up to that point was somebody that I felt like medium about, right? Which is, you know, I hope that I know it sounds very mean, but it was this choice that I made because if I dated somebody that I was passionately in love with, that's like giving them too much power and control. So I ended up also, you know, I'm talking about, I got married when I was 22. So all of this stuff happened when I was very young. So in case it sounds very heartless, just understand that I was very young, I was very emotionally underdeveloped. Um, and so all the people that I dated, you know, before my marriage were people that I could tell were way more into me than I was into them. It was like this control mechanism. I couldn't handle actually being in a relationship with somebody that I was passionately in love with. I married my husband because I felt very safe. He's a very good person. He's very loyal. I knew that we he would never destroy my heart. <laughs> but a lot of that was because I was almost refusing to fully give somebody my heart, right? Which took me a very long time to realize how cruel that is. And that's the huge realization I had in therapy, and this was pretty recently, I would say, probably in the last four or five years, where my therapist said something and it clicked. And I think she said something like, do you see how hard it would be to be in love with somebody like you? Or I don't think she said it that mean, but it like clicked in my head. And I, I remember, um, I, I think the example... I don't remember if this is the example or I was like telling my friend about this and I'm I think I'm just made up this example but it was something like this where she said something like you know when you're dating somebody and they say something like oh I'm like this is a fake example just just so you understand what it would feel like to date someone like the slurm young me right Let's say you're dating somebody and they say, oh, I'm so jealous because you're a co-worker and you flirt and it just makes me jealous. And they're saying it like in a cutesy way, but it's like it's kind of true, but they're not saying it like I'm going to like punch holes in your drywall way. <laughs> they're just being like, I'm kind of jealous of your co-worker. And if that was somebody that you're dating that said that to you, you'd be like, that's that's kind of cute and that's kind of endearing and it's like bonding to know that somebody you know loves me and cherishes me and to the point where it makes them a little uncomfortable when someone else is interested you know and again I, I know that there's scary jealousy, but I'm not talking about scary jealousy. It's just somebody being like, it makes me uncomfortable that your coworker's flirting with you. It's kind of cute, right? But when I was in a relationship, the relationship with my ex-husband and all the relationships before that, I couldn't, I couldn't give that, my partner that. I couldn't say that because it was too vulnerable. I would never in a million years say that to my ex-husband. I would just be like, oh, 
oh, she's flirting with you. That's nice. Good for you. Like not even like just be like, oh, cool. I'm not jealous. Like I'd just be like, yeah, I'm like I'm like a cool wife. I don't give a shit. And in my head, I thought I was just being like cool wife, coolest wife ever. I like pizza and beer. But thinking back on it, if it, the roles were reversed, that would fucking bum me out. You know, like, hey, my coworker's flirting with me, and and do you care? No, cool. I'm your wife, and you don't care that this man not wearing a shirt with abs is flirting with me. That's that's cool. Like that just feels bad, you know. And the realization I think that I had was that that was me not fully giving everything that I should have been giving in a relationship because I was too scared and I was like too protective of my own feelings and so you know in my head I like to think of it like we're both playing a game right and the game involved both of us to like throw in all our fucking chips and I I wasn't throwing in all my chips Meanwhile, I, I'm pretty sh- certain that my ex-husband was, you know, he was fully committed and, you know, in this vulnerable emotional state. And I was like, meh, do you know what I mean? And that sucks. And it's and the thing about and the reason why it's so important for me to say that and own up to how shitty that is being a slurm is that while I was being a slurm. My perception was that I was like being a good wife or I was being the better person. I was like, well, I sacrifice my wants and needs for this person to be able to work on their wants and needs and I'm just going to support them. But the truth was that I wasn't being a good person. I was being a controlling overly controlling person that wasn't really giving it my all you know and that be that extends to all parts of the slurm life like for example the fact that I was sort of taking this role as a caretaker to my ex-husband in my head I was like I'm sacrificing my needs and wants but the truth was I was too scared to put my self out there in a way. And I was hiding behind him doing that because, you know, my ex-husband had had this professional career that was very front, like, I don't know, forward-facing, like people-facing. When people saw him, he was very visible. And he did gain a lot of positive attention for that, but he gained a lot of negative attention And, you know, when he did both of those things, he was alone in that. Like, he got fame and recognition, but when all the shit hit the fan, he was the one that was, like, dragged. And, you know, obviously, I I mean, you know, it was, I guess, fair because I didn't really have any control or input uh, over his career outside of, like, being a homemaker, essentially. But I got to reap so many benefits of being somebody's wife without any of the 
negatives. And that's like another example of me playing a game without putting all my chips in, you know? It's just like, if you are going to stand next to somebody that's going to be visible, famous, and successful, you get to like get all whatever, the money and the trips and the nice clothes without ever, ever fucking putting your neck out. You know what I mean? You're holding your chips again. And it's like, and then on top of that, I think a lot of people that do live the slurm life are like, get to live that life that's portrayed as, and, and get to be portrayed always till the end as a good person, which is what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you don't ever say your real opinion, or if you don't ever show who you really are to people, no one can hold you accountable for anything. And so you live this life in a buffer of safety. And it's like really unfair. And I'm I'm just saying all this because that's like what I was doing, right? And I'm being um, critical, self-critical. And it took me so many years to realize that essentially what I had been brainwashed into thinking was being someone's helper and caretaker was a way for me to live life as a coward. And that, <laughs> and that is like the life I think I was living um, before this big shift. And I don't want, you know, I, I'm, I'm very fine being critical of myself and my actions, but I don't want anyone who is living this lifestyle thinking that I'm thinking that of you. Because, again, it's not even really a choice that I think most of us are making. We're just told that this is how this is what we're supposed to do. And that's what I was told. And I never really put any thought into it. I had to put thought into it to pop out of that life. Um, and so then all of these things, you know, that I just discussed are realizations I had after sort of going through this transition. And obviously one of the main things that happened was I told my ex that I wanted to end this marriage. And you know, at first I think he was like surprised, but then now I think, obviously I can't speak for him, but when I see him and see how happy he is and how his, you know, new relationships and his new lifestyle seems so much better suited to him, I, I'm pretty sure that he agrees that that was the right choice for us. Actually, I know that he agrees. I think, you know, it was jarring at first, but then he was like, yeah, you're right. This is definitely... This the our marriage was not working, um, and we, that's not who we were. We just we thought we were those people because our parents told us that, but we weren't. Um, so after the shift, I realized all these things about how I had been living, and I see a lot of people, um, living in that way. And you know, another thing I learned in therapy is that. Not everything that's right for me is right for everybody. And I'm not saying, I'm not like here being like, get a fucking divorce and become a stand-up comedian. Like, please don't do that. Do not. But, um, but I guess, you know, you can make these little, 
maybe some parts of this conversation are making sense to you. Like, are you, are you somebody that only dates people that you're, that like you more than you like them? You know, that might be something to look at and wonder about. And let me tell you, so, okay, I, I like went through this like epiphany in therapy where I was just like, I'm not really living the life that I want to live. And I famously announced in therapy for the first time in my entire life that I want to be a stand-up comedian when I was 33. And then I started doing it the next day and I didn't stop. It was like a very, like very profound shift. Um, but I guess I want to talk about the romantic relationships thing because I don't think I've ever even, I probably talked about it you know, over the course of the last few years. But when I got a divorce and then I started dating, that was the first time in my life that I dated like fully, like throwing all my fucking chips in. Right. And that was, that was very intense. And that's only been, well, it's been a while now. It's been, I guess, five years that I've been doing that. And, you know, at the beginning of the five years, when, when I finally at 33 started dating, like with my full fucking heart, it was like I was like a teenager and I was like dating for the first time. And like I had my heart fucking broken multiple times, but for the first time in my entire life. And here's here's the difference because I, I know I have talked about this in the past. Now I'm like looking back at the five years that I've been sort of really, really like dating people that I like and like fucking people that I like and stuff like that. Um. And it was horrible. <laughs> like, I think what I feared so much in my all my adult life that stopped me from actually doing this, which was rejection and heartbreak. Obviously, everyone's terrified of that. That part was that that was really bad. It really hurts a lot. And I was right to be afraid of it because it fucking you think uh, things were rough multiple times. Um, but. I'm going to say this. If if you find yourself like relating to what I was talking about, like the slurm relationships where you're only dating people that you know that you don't really like that much because you're scared of getting your heart broken. It is horrible. It's a, as bad as you think it's going to be. But it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. And you will learn things that you really you really should know in life. Is That's what I'll say. Like songs will sound better poem poetry will make sense to you you'll be like holy i i fucking get this poem you'll you'll be crying reading a fucking poem don't you want to cry reading a poem on the subway that's like that's kind of that's kind of badass like don't you want your heart just like ripped out of your body it's kind of fun you know and then you like cry and like do drugs with your friends who doesn't love that you know, you got to really go into the darkness to to see that the sunshine is the sunshine is brighter after you see your true darkness, if you know what I'm saying. Um, it was. I Oh, but this is what I want to say about getting your heart broken. The feeling of the worst feeling ever of getting your fucking heart broken, like whatever you're terrified of. And that's why you're not ever dating people you like. That feeling is 10 million times better than being a fucking slurm and never being in love. Like just the, the worst heartbreak you can ever imagine where you like lose your fucking mind and develop a drinking problem. That 
is so much better than being married for fucking 25 years and never your coochie never got wet. Do you know what I mean? Like that, the, tw- the 25 years loveless marriage, that is actually the nightmare. Like that, you don't want that. If that's what you're living, get out, girl. Like just go, go date a man with tattoos over his eyebrow. Okay. He's going to do a fucking number on your heart. It's probably gonna be the same person that did a number on my heart. Who cares? Just do it. Who cares? It's fun. It's fun. And it will, you'll eventually feel better. Anyway, that's one thing I want to say. Um, I, I actually just like realized for the first time that I've been like single chaotically actively. I'm going to get my heart broken single for the last five years. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, I've had a few relationships and I'm so fucking different. I'm so fucking different than who I was five years ago. And I'm going to say one last thing about that. For all the fucking heartbreak and the somebody tap dancing all over my heart that I've gone through, I'm still hopeful about love and I'm still like okay with it. And I'm still, you know, throwing myself in, into whatever. Like if I love some, you know, I'm just throwing myself into it. I'm not scared. I was, I spent my, the first, you know, half of my life until I was 33 being terrified, not, never wanting to do anything. So I'm over that. I'm like, I'm just balls to the wall walls balls to the walls is that the saying why would that be a thing balls to the walls what are what are people with balls doing putting them on the walls i'm living life balls to the walls um that's i guess like that overall is advice for any part anybody living any part of the slurm life like where be it like relationships career wise maybe you're not doing what you want um because you're afraid of failure or getting your heart broken or whatever Whatever you're fearing, you know, is like 10 million times better than living a slurm life. That's that's like probably the lesson I want to like leave with you because I feel like this is getting wait, I feel like I did want to talk about one other part of that. No, I, I talked about talked about how it's it's kind of you think that you're being a good person, but you're actually not. You're being harmful because you're not being as vulnerable and you're being kind of controlling. Um, and I talked about the romantic relationships being really different than I was. What else did I want to talk about? What else did I want to talk about? Oh, I kind of wanted to talk. Okay, a little bit. I'm just going to leave you with this. Uh, it's kind of related to when I what was a slurm and I thought I was like, not bad. I didn't think I was better than other people, but I thought being selfless, right? And like having humility and being like, I don't want, I don't want attention. I want to be away from the spotlight. I thought because of all those things, it's like this weird, deeply ingrained idea. I think a lot of like religions have it. It's like the suffering of like humility and bowing your head down and not not being um, arrogant and you know not not being haughty. I don't I don't know the language they use like back in church and stuff. And then you're gonna be rewarded in fucking heaven or whatever. First of all, that that shit's not real. There is no heaven. So you, all the suffering that you're going through now, there's gonna be nothing after you die. But um, all of that is so. Um, what's the word for it? It not genuine because the truth is, when I was like living a slurm life, I I still had a fucking ego, right? Like everyone, e- an ego is natural. It's like pretending that you don't have a liver everyone has a fucking liver do you know what i mean but just because you pretend that you don't have a liver doesn't mean your liver goes away and not and wanting attention 
is natural. Wanting validation, wanting somebody to tell you that you're good for whatever it is that you do. Truly, truly finding a partner that like sees you and loves you for who you really are and not just some weird like uh, fake humble facade that you're portraying that we all want all of those things whether you pretend that you don't want them or not and I'm talking to my slurm self here not anyone in general like me pretending that I I didn't have an ego I didn't want attention you know I didn't really need to be deeply in love with somebody that really saw me for who I was me pretending that I I didn't have those very basic natural um needs and desires didn't make me better than other human beings it made me shitty and resentful and angry at people on the sidewalk that would bump into me it was like this lie that I was telling myself that I was like you know, I was above everybody else because I don't need people to stare at me when I go to a party. Like, oh, look at that woman wearing a skimpy dress. What a fucking bitch. You know, the truth is I, I obviously wanted all of those things because everybody does. And there's nothing wrong about wanting those things. You know, it's a natural part of who we are. Um, And I think it kind of falls in line with this idea that you think you're doing something as a good person, but in a lot of ways those actions are harmful and controlling and bad, right? That's like, I, I think that's what I wanted to leave on. God, sorry, I have like so many thoughts about this, but I think that's a good clean ending. Um, oh, I guess I'll just, I something came up when I was like talk, trying to end this episode, but like the uh, one last thing about romantic relationships, if, and this I think is very important because a lot of this, speaking again, like specifically to like women or, people who are socialized as girls, um, there's this idea that if you act a certain way, you will, men will like it, right? And I, that was like a big part of like just my upbringing. And even, I know it sounds so like misogynistic and stuff. And I didn't even realize this, but I just, I really had a lot of internalized ideas of like, if I'm a quiet, good girl, men are going to think I'm so like cute and perfect or whatever, even though it's so weird to say out loud. Um, but it's true to a certain extent, like a lot of whatever men will, whatever, be attracted to you and like you. But then if you, but that, that feeling is yucky because it's like, they don't even like you. They like this, like, like little character that you're playing. Right. But, um, I think now that I'm just like authentically living my life, and I meet somebody that actually likes me, that's, that, that feels a lot better. And as I was saying that, I just remembered that I actually did talk about this a few months ago on this podcast. But I don't know, maybe you didn't hear it because it was embedded into an interview that I did. And, um, you know, maybe you didn't hear that because you weren't going to listen for that sort of information. But to be liked for your authentic self, and not like a facade that you're creating to please other people is such a different feel- feeling. And hopefully that convinces you to live an authentic life. I'm, I'm not trying to convince anybody. I just thought I'd talk about my experience and, in hopes that maybe it's relatable to some of you. And you know what? If you want to keep living that slurm life, do it. If, if that makes you happy and it, it, it does feel very safe. 
and there's a there are times where you know shit gets rough for me where i'm like damn i wish i was a fucking slurm again i could just fucking go to lunch and drink a glass of wine and go home and like no one will say mean things to me on the internet that was actually kind of fun and easy so i'm not hating on the slurm life if that's a life that you choose but hopefully it was interesting for people to hear this and my my journey with this like very very hard hard shift that i did in the middle of my life thank you so much for listening to my podcast i will see you next week on friday all episodes are on joy sauce they come out every friday you can follow the podcast at Harry Butthole Podcast. I have a Patreon that I just re- realized I did. I forgot to check that I um, said that if you donate, you can suggest a topic. I'm checking it right now. Sorry if you messaged me in the last week. You can suggest a topic that I will cover for these episodes moving forward that, that are only going to be me. And if you, um, I'm going to go through the Patreon suggestions before i go through the instagram suggestions so if you leave one i might even talk about it next week if i have a lot of stuff to say about it um the patreon's at patreon.com slash harry butthole podcast and instagram again is harry butthole podcast my social media is ym mayor or young me mayor on tiktok thank you for listening bye